Well, I'm very excited to be here this morning. I hope that you've enjoyed the service so far. And I think Colton said it right in his prayer when this world has a lot of problems. And one of those problems that we're going to talk about this morning that the world has messed up is marriage and how two become one and how the world has distorted what that truly means. This morning, we're going to discuss the one flesh relationship. And as we start, I just want you to see how, how bad the world has distorted their view of marriage. There was a study done a couple years ago. They polled people under 30 years old, so my generation of people. 44% of those people think that marriage is headed for extinction. That's an, an odd thing to think about. And those same 30 people under 30, 78% of them, on the other hand, want to get married. And that doesn't make sense. You think about, well, marriage is going away, but they, they want to get married. And what that tells me is that my generation of people are scared to get married. They've seen all the heartache. They've seen all the trouble that marriage has caused. They've seen their mom and dad fight and go through this terrible divorce. One of the statistics is that 40% of marriages end in divorce, and that statistic has stayed the same for the last years. We've seen heartache, we've seen problems, and we're scared to do it. And so this morning, I want to go through marriage and how to do it right. You know, we like the idea of marriage, but we don't always look to the right source for how to do marriage correctly. We think we have our, our idea of marriage figured out. A couple months ago, I was talking at work. I was doing this exam on a two-year-old little girl, and she had 20 baby teeth, and in all 20 of these baby teeth, she had a cavity. 20 teeth, 20 cavities. Think Something's not going on right here. And I talked to the mom, and I explained to her, well, you're going to have to brush your daughter's teeth now. And she said, well, she won't let me. And she looked at the little girl, and she said, will you let me brush your teeth now? And the little girl said, no. And the mom looked at me and said, see, she won't let me. And, and it's crazy. This two-year-old does not know how to run her life. She doesn't know what's best for her. Her mom and dad do. And in the same way, God, who created marriage, knows what's best for us. And we need to make sure that we are looking to him for the guide in our marriage. So we're going to talk about two becoming one flesh. We're going to go back to the beginning in the garden when God created it. And we're not going to look at our own ideas. We're going to look at what God and the original intent that God had when he created marriage. So we're going to look at what marriage is for. We're going to look at how we're supposed to correctly do marriage. So we're going to go to the beginning. God has just created the universe. He's just created earth. He's just created nature. And now he creates man. Genesis 1.26, let us make man in our image according to the likeness, let the, to our likeness, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And I've underlined those things because those are all plural. Let us mean multiple. There's fish, there's birds, there's cattle, but man's alone. All of these are plural, but man is singular. Genesis 2.20 so Adam gave names to all the cattle, to the birds of the air, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. So Adam spends the day and he names all of these animals. And he, he sees that they all have a mate, that there's multiple of them. He sees that God's not alone. And then 
he realizes that he's alone, that there's no one for him. There's no helper comparable to him. Up until this point, everything that God had done was very good. But this is the first not good thing that the Bible records is that man was alone. And I, I ask you, have you ever truly felt alone? And, and I started thinking about that and I don't know that I ever truly have. But as a, as a way to illustrate that, I thought about Castaway. And I, I don't know if you've seen this movie, but Tom Hanks, he's flying over the Pacific Ocean and he gets stuck on this island and he has a plane crash. He's there for four years. And after four years, he just craves any type of interaction. And he finds this washed up volleyball and he names it and he talks to it and he takes it everywhere with him. He risks his life multiple times for this inanimate object. And, and we look at that and we think he was losing it. He was crazy. But that's what God designed us to do. God designed us to crave interaction, to crave having someone around to talk to. And I think at that point, when he saw that Adam was alone, that's when he creates Eve. In Genesis chapter two, verse 21, and the Lord God caused a deep, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam and he slept and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman and he brought her to the, <clears throat> to the man. And I think this, this verse is really important because no other thing on the face of this earth was created this way. When you look at the creation of the animals, when you look at the creation of Adam, they were made from dirt. And if you look up the Hebrew word for dirt, it's Adama, which is where Adam got his name. So even Adam, his name comes from dirt. And Eve, she was created differently. She was created from Adam. And I think that shows the, the intimacy and the closeness that the, the man and the woman were going to, sh going to share. And he brought her to the man. And, and you think about Adam and the emotion that he was probably going through. He had spent all this time alone. He had named all these animals. Every waking moment that he had been on this earth, he had been alone. And then God brings this helper to you. And you realize that, that you won't be alone anymore. And Adam, because of that, Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And Adam realizes the importance of this. God saw that Adam was alone. God saw that Adam needed a helper and he created woman for man from man. That's how much God cared. And next, Genesis 2.24, it says, Adam says, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And that word therefore means because of what just happened, because of what you just read, because Adam was alone, because God created a helper for Adam, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. God made two people from one person. God made Adam and Eve from Adam, made Eve from Adam. And the union of marriage is about recombining those and making one from two people. And this verse, Genesis 2.24, we're gonna look at its usage as Paul quotes it and as Jesus quotes it in the New Testament. And we're gonna start with Ephesians chapter five. And I hesitated on reading this whole thing, but it's just 12 verses. We're gonna read it all because I think it's really important. 
Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he's the savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. A husband's, so husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves, him, loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his, and of his bones. Verse 31, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. There's our Genesis 2:24 quote. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in, so, in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. There's our Genesis 2:24. And so Paul had just gone over all these things about marriage and how the husband should love the wife and the wife should respect the husband. And you think about the church at Ephesus, they were obviously doing something wrong with marriage because Paul's having to go over it. And Paul says, go back to the beginning. And that he quotes Genesis 2.24. He says, go back to the original intent. This is what God intended in marriage. A man shall leave, shall be joined, and shall become one flesh. You know, you think about even now, nowadays, marriage has been shaped by culture. And that's what happened back then. And Paul's saying, get away from what culture's told you about marriage. Go back to the original intent as it was created. And so he says, uh, back in, in Genesis 2.24, they shall leave. And that, that's a physical leaving. That's an emotional leaving, leaving. That's a separation from what you've known and creating this bond with, with a new person. And joined, when you look at that word joined, the Greek word for that literally means to be glued, to be, to be stuck together. And, and you think about what gluing means. Whenever we want to glue something together, we want it to be permanent. We don't try and find a glue that might last a few days. We want a permanent glue, something that's going to last forever, or it's useless. It's not a glue that you want to use. And then through that gluing together, a unification is made, a oneness is created. And I think the perfect application for this is glue itself. And I don't know if you've ever worked with J.B. Weld, but this is probably the next best thing to, to uh, duct tape. It's really good stuff. It's, it's a strong bond. And, and with this, you mix your base and your catalyst. One of them is black, one of them is white. You mix it together and it becomes this really dark gray material. And it becomes super hard over time. And this bond can withstand 143 times the tire pressure in your tires. That's how strong this stuff is. And that's, that's how our marriage should be. Our marriage is called to be the strongest bond on this earth, the unification of our marriage. It's created to be lifelong. So Paul had just quoted Genesis 2.24, and then he says, this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning the church. And this, this verse kind of tripped me up just a little bit. Paul's not just referring to some little, little thing that the Old Testament was having difficulty with. He says it's a great mystery. It's a profound mystery. He had just talked about spousal marriage, and he's comparing that to Christ's marriage and the church and the love that Christ has for that. 
And you look back in the Old Testament, it was a mystery. They didn't understand marriage because they hadn't seen Christ. They hadn't seen Christ's love for the church. And so it was a mystery to them. And so Paul's saying, when you look at marriage through the lens of the New Testament, through the love that Christ has for his church, that's when you truly, your eyes are open. That's when you can see how it's supposed to be done. And because of that, your marriage is not about you. Your marriage represents Christ's love for his church and Christ's marriage to his church. Every godly marriage ever existed to be a metaphor of Christ's love and Christ's marriage to his church. And your marriage represents that. And before creating this bond, before creating this marriage of a man and a wife, God knew that he was going to send his son to die for his church. And so marriage is a representation of that itself. As the new Adam, as Christ, as Christ descended into death, just as Adam fell asleep and Eve was birthed from his side, the church was born from Christ's wounded side. It's a comparison. But every day we see marriages breaking up. We see marriages splitting. We see divorce and how rampant it is. And Satan, he wants to attack your marriage. He sees the likeness and the comparison and the metaphor that Christ loved for the church and how the husbands are to love their wives. And he wants to destroy that. He doesn't want Christ to be one with his church. He doesn't want the, the church to obey Christ and be, be uh, subject to it. And he's going to continue to attack it. He's going to continue to distort it. And this morning, I want us to make sure that we know how marriage is supposed to be done correctly. As we do that, I want to look back at the Old Testament and I want to show you how quickly Satan attacked marriage. And we're not going to look at Genesis chapter 3 where Satan attacked Adam and Eve through their marriage. But we're going to look at, um, starting after that, a couple generations. God's intention was always for marriage to be between one man and one woman, and they will become one flesh. And that intention has never changed. But man quickly tried to change that. Lamech, who was Cain's son, so just two generations after Adam and Eve, he took two wives. And I think it's interesting and important to note that Lamech was a very evil man. The Bible says that anyone who defied him, that he killed them just out of pride because he didn't want anybody to go against him. And his pride, Lamech's pride, is actually what allowed him to think that he knew better than God and that he could take more than one wife, that he could do something different other than what God's original intent was. And so he takes two wives. Abraham, he took two wives. You remember the story of Sarah and Hagar? We'll read that real quick in Genesis 16. So Abraham, Abram's wife, Sarah, took Hagar, her Egyptian slave, and gave her to her husband, Abram, as a wife for him. This happened after Abram had lived in the land of Canaan 10 years. He slept with Hagar, she became pregnant, and when she saw that she was pregnant, her mistress became contemptible to her. Then Sarai said to Abram, you are responsible for my suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and when she saw that she was pregnant, I became contemptible to her. May the Lord judge between me and you. Does that sound like a one flesh relationship? This is messed up stuff. That is not what God intended. It's not a one flesh relationship. Jacob, he took two wives. And you remember how Jacob uh, worked for Leah and then he had to work for Rachel. 
And he loved Rachel more than he did Leah, but he was married to them both. And so how do you have a one flesh relationship when you love one wife more than you love the other? It's impossible. And this practice of polygamy and taking more than one wife continued down. And it goes through many, many generations. We come to David and and you remember the story of David and, and the lust that David had for women, and it leads to multiple people's deaths because he thought that he could just have however many women that he wanted to. Solomon, his son, he takes 700 wives. He, continue, he sees how his dad's marital practices went, and he takes 700 wives and 300 mistresses. And, and you think about having a 1,000 different women in your life and the different direction that that each one of these women is pulling you, there's no way to have a one flesh relationship in that. And we find out that later on in his life, these wives pulled away his, his heart from God. These marriages were not one flesh. These marriages didn't represent the original intent of the one flesh relationship that, that God called us to have. And I think that if each one of these men, if they would have kept one wife and been true to that one flesh relationship, a lot of their major problems that they had wouldn't have been problems. These marriages, like we talked about earlier, did not see the love that Christ had for the church. And this, this was the, marriage, or the, the mystery that Paul was talking about. It was still a mystery back then. They didn't understand that. They didn't have something to look at like we do and think that's how you do it. That's how you have love for someone. And these marital problems, they continue they go down through all the major prophets, through the minor prophets. You see social injustice talked about in each, one of these, in each one of these prophets' books. And we get down to Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament. And God has had enough with marital treachery. He's done with the unfaithfulness. And, and he realizes, and I think he realized it long before, but his original intent of having a one flesh marriage was not happening. Malachi 2 verse 10 have we not all one Father? Have, has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, and abomination, and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loved and has married, the daughter of a foreign God. And so Malachi is juxtaposing and comparing God's love and God's relationship with Judah, as well as these men's relationships with their wives. And he's saying, Judah, just like you are running around on your wives, you're running around on me. You're not faithful to your wife. And they kept cheating on him over and over and over again. And that's exactly what they were doing in their own relationships to their own wives. He continues there in verse 13 you cover the Lord's altar with your tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and your, the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and the wife by covenant. So they kept offering up all of these sacrifices to God and they couldn't figure out why God wasn't accepting them. And God says, you're not faithful to your wife, just like you're not faithful to me. That's why I'm not accepting your sacrifices. They weren't honoring the covenants that they made in their marriage. And so we get to the New Testament and you think, well, we finally got it figured out. 400 years after Malachi wrote, surely we've got our marriage problems figured out. They didn't. And we get to Mark 10 and we're gonna read Mark 10. Same story happens in Matthew 19. Matthew 19. 
But the Pharisees came and asked Jesus, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife, testing him? And, and I just, I can't fathom this because you have the creator of the universe, you have God himself on the earth, and you can ask him anything. You can say, how do I make my marriage stronger? How do I love my wife more? But what do you ask? How do I separate it? How do I, can I divorce my, my wife for any reason? And one thing we need to note about the Pharisees is, is they truly didn't care. What they were doing was they were trying to test Jesus. They were trying to find fault in him and his, his view of the law so that later on that they, they could kill him. They were looking for a way to trap him. What Jesus says, Jesus answered and said to them, what did Moses command you? So Jesus knew these Pharisees. He knew that they knew the law inside and out. And so he points them back to the law. And he's, what, what does the law say? What did Moses tell you? And he knew that they were gonna try and justify themselves through the law. And they respond and say, well, they said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and to dismiss her. And Jesus answered and said to them, because of the hardness of your heart, he wrote you this precept. And what they're quoting is they're looking back at, at Deuteronomy chapter 24. And back in Deuteronomy chapter 24, the men could care less about their wives. They were putting, putting them away. They were casting them away. They didn't want anything to do with them anymore as they were marrying other, other women. And they weren't providing for these women who they were married to. And these wives, they couldn't go and marry someone else because they were already married to this man. And so they needed someone to provide for them. And so Moses says, you write her a certificate of divorce and that allows her to go and be provided for by another man. And Jesus says, it's because of the hardness of your hearts that he had to write that. They didn't care. They didn't care about the, the wife of their covenant. And in no way does Deuteronomy 24 promote divorce. In no way does it initiate divorce. In no way does it condone divorce. He's saying that he had to write that because you didn't care not to initiate divorce. This is a quote from Ben Sirah. He was a Jewish scribe from around 200 BC, so a little bit before the time of Christ. He wrote, if she does not go along as you direct, cut her away from you. That's how, how little they cared about their wives. These Jews cared about their wives. Cut her away from you. They understood what one flesh was and they were so concerned about amputation and cutting away because they didn't care about their wives. They knew that God created one in this one flesh and they wanted to make two back again from this one flesh. And I think it's natural for man to see what God has created, what he's given to us and mess it up. And you see that happen over and over and over again. And we've done that. We've messed it up. And, and you look at a contract. A contract, if one agreeing party does something in violation of the contract, then it's considered broken. The whole contract becomes null and void. Basically, the signers of a contract agree to hold up their ends as long as the other signatories hold up theirs too. And so this is the world's view of marriage. This is where we've gotten to. This is not how God wants us to look at marriage, not as a contract. This is a legal agreement that's made between two parties. And you think about an employment agreement, and a lot of the people in here have, have signed employment agreements. I've signed one. And it regulates how you are to inter interact with your employer and how they're to respond to that. And I think about um, an example of this. So Jordan, when we lived in Houston, she was working for a speech therapy company, a pediatric speech therapy company. 
Part of their agreement was as long as Jordan provides speech therapy sessions for these kids, the company, their responsibility was to pay Jordan. And as long as Jordan worked, they paid her. As long as she paid, as long as they paid her, she worked. And a couple months after, the, after this agreement was signed and went on, money quit showing up in our bank account. Jordan was providing the sessions, but they quit paying. And so because they didn't hold up their end of the bargain, their end of this contract, it was null and void. Jordan went and got another job because they didn't hold up their end of the bargain. In marriage, basically a contract, the, the viewpoint now is I will stay in this marriage as long as you don't do something I don't like. That's the world's view of marriage. And there was a song a couple years ago where Kanye West said, we want prenup, we want prenup. And if you don't want know what a prenuptial agreement is, it's a legal arrangement made before marriage is even signed and before it's even a thing where you agree on if this marriage separates, this is what you get and this is what I get. And so it's preparing for divorce before the marriage even happens. That's where our society, that's how our society has viewed marriage and that's where it's at now. Does this sound like a one flesh relationship? It doesn't. And so instead of the contract view of marriage, we're, we're called to have the covenant view of marriage. Both parties agree to hold up their ends regardless of whether the other party keeps their part of the agreement. A violation of a covenant by one party doesn't matter as far as the other party's responsibility to continue to do what they agreed to do. It's the same covenant that Christ has with his church. He's not gonna leave it. He died for the church to save it and he's not gonna leave. In the same way, we're supposed to have that same love for our wives and the wives have that same love for, our, for the husbands. And we've all entered into this contractual version of marriage with the state, but with God, we've entered into the covenant view of marriage. And this covenant view and this contractual view of marriage, breaking that has, is what's plagued our society. So back in 1969, Ronald Reagan signed the country's first no-fault divorce clause first no-fault divorce law. What that did is it eliminated a spousal's need to provide wrongdoing of one party or the other to get a divorce. And so you could get a divorce for any reason or you could get a divorce for no reason at all. You didn't have to provide a reason. Their idea was that as long as the parents are happy and if the parents are separated and the parents are happy, it's gonna be good for the kids. This was written in the Journal of Divorce in 1979. Divorce even holds growth potential for mothers as they could enjoy increased personal autonomy, a new sense of competence and control, and the development of better relationships with their children. Really? That's what, that's what our society has deemed acceptable. And you see how that's played out. So before this no-fault divorce clause was put into effect, 11% of the children born in the 1950s saw their parents divorce. After the no-fault divorce, after you could get a divorce for any reason at all or no reason at all, 50% of the children born in the 1970s saw their parents divorce. Cohabitating couples increased from 439,000 to 6.4 million in 2007. Now it's at 18 million. And you, what that, those statistics show me is that humans have always looked to validate themselves with the law. And that's exactly what the Pharisees were doing. They were looking at this law in Deuteronomy and say, how can I get away with divorcing my wife? 
And that's what's happened now. Civil law, we've, since this law has gone into effect, we think that it's morally okay to get a divorce and that somehow the law being the law now, this being the law, that condones divorce in our lives. And I wanna tell you, civil law has never been the, been the standard of God for morality. God's morality is God's morality and God's law, regardless of whether civil law says it is or not. And you think about abortion, you think about same-sex marriage, you think about alcohol, just because the law says it's okay doesn't mean that it's morally acceptable and that God allows it to happen. And so culture has done that with marriage. It's tainted this bond that a man is supposed to have with his wife and the one flesh marriage that they're supposed to have. And so they're just trying to justify their actions, the Pharisees were. And what does Jesus tell them and what does Jesus tell us about that? He says, but from the beginning, he goes back to Genesis chapter 2, 24, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Jesus does the same thing. He says, go back to the beginning. Forget what you've heard. Go back to the beginning and look at the one flesh intent that God designed for marriage. And he was, he was talking about the covenant of marriage. He wasn't talking about the contract. Go back to the original covenant that was created in the garden. Jesus says, therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. See, these Pharisees, they were trying to come up with any hypothetical situation where they could justify themselves in getting a divorce. And so they said, well, what if my wife does? And Jesus said, don't do it. Don't get a divorce. Well, what if she don't? Quit thinking about it that way. Think about the one flesh covenant that you've made with your wife. And right after this, the, the disciples ask him about divorce and he does give them some specific and some terms for divorce and when divorce can happen. But these people were so concerned about separating it that they had forgotten about the one flesh covenant. And so real quick as we end this and we wrap up, I wanna look at what does a one flesh relationship look like in your life? And we've but I want you to see how you can show this one flesh relationship in your life. Three things. First one, your marriage is a lifelong covenant. It's, a, it's not a contract, it's a covenant. It's a bond that was created with the intention of never being broken. And you need to go into it that way. And you need to look at your wife and, and your husband and you think about that. Jesus says, therefore, what God has joined together, let not man, not, let not man separate. We just read that. If you've ever been told that divorce is okay, that's wrong. Divorce, God is not for divorce. God hates the separation of a covenant that he was there for. Divorce is terrible. That doesn't mean, like I said, that there's not terms for divorce and reasons for it, but God never looks at a marriage and, and wants it to be ended and wants it to be separated. That should never be the primary option because divorce is like amputation. Only in the most extreme situations do you amputate. If you get a, a paper cut on your finger, you don't look to amputate the, your entire arm. And in the same way, when your marriage goes through struggles, when you have problems, you don't look to amputation. You look to how you can fix it, how you can work on it. Christ's marriage to the church will not fail. And just like that, our marriages shouldn't fail either. Number two, your marriage needs to display Christ's love for his church. It's no longer a mystery to us. 
we can see Christ's love for his church, the fact that he died for the church, unlike the people in the Old Testament who didn't have that, we can see that and we can live our lives in that same way. We have the perfect picture of a one flesh marriage. Ephesians 5.22, wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife as also Christ is the head of the church. He's the savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. We have no excuse to not have a, a lifelong, lasting covenant, one flesh relationship. How do you display the love that, that is shown here? Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. We have those examples of Christ and the church. The, the church, just as the wife is subject to the husband, the church is subject to Christ. Husbands, love your wives. Just as Christ died for the church, just as Christ showed sacrificial love to the church, husbands, you do the exact same thing to your wives. You show, you show sacrificial love to her. And the third point, love your spouse unconditionally without excuse. When you look at Ephesians there, there's no conditions placed on that. We need to make sure that in our lives, we don't place, we don't place conditions on that. And this was a problem that all of the churches had. Everywhere in, in Europe, everywhere in, in, this was a problem that the churches there were plagued with. It was so ingrained in the culture there that you could just do away with marriage, that you could just separate your marriage for any reason and so it's clarified multiple times. Paul wrote in Ephesians, Paul writes in Colossians, wives submit to your own husbands. Husbands, love your wives to the church at Colossae. Paul writes to Titus to the, to, for Titus to spread this message around. Young women, love your husbands. It was a problem there too. Peter writes in 1 Peter, wives, likewise be submissive to your own husbands. Husbands, dwell with them in an understanding way. And this was to be dispersed across all the, the churches that Peter worked with. And notice, there's no conditions. You do it. You don't make excuses. You love your wife unconditionally. Wives, you respect your husband unconditionally. Don't be bitter towards your wives. Christ has this unconditional love for the church that we're called to have for our wives. And so if you're in a true one flesh marriage, which everyone here is, your marriage is a lifelong covenant. Just like Christ's marriage to the church is a lifelong covenant. Your marriage needs to display Christ's love for his church. Your marriage needs to be a picture of how that sacrificial love comes into play and how that respect comes into play. And just as Christ's love has no conditions for his church, our love in our marriages shouldn't have any conditions. And so, this morning, you need help in your marriage. Christ is the picture of how our marriage should go. And if you're not looking to Christ as how your marriage is operated and is run by, you need to change that. Christ needs to be and is the example in our lives for marriage. In unfamiliar waters back in, in times and even now, um, when a, a captain was steering their ship and they were coming into harbor, if the waves got to be too much and the weather was terrible or they didn't know what was going on underneath, they didn't know um, if they were gonna hit a reef or something like that, the captain could raise a flag. He could raise this blue and yellow flag. And what this flag, regardless of the language that you spoke, this flag said, I need a pilot. I need someone to come on board. I need someone to steer this ship for me. 
And what would happen, they would raise this flag, a pilot would come out, they would board the ship, they would steer this ship because they knew the waters. They knew what was underneath. They could navigate the waters because they'd done it a million times. And they would steer the ship to, to safety. They'd steer it to harbor. And in the same way, Christ, if we lean on him, if we look to his example, if we let him pilot our marriages, our marriages can be a one flesh relationship. They can show sacrificial love. Only through Jesus can our marriages survive the toughest of times and the toughest of circumstances. He provides an amazing love that we need to see in our lives, that we need to show in our lives. And so this morning, if you need help, if your marriage is, is on rocky grounds and you don't know what to do, ask Jesus for help. The church here would love to help you. And we ask that now that you come to, come to the front, if the church can assist you in any way as we stand and sing.